Hello there, and welcome. I hope you had a restful and joyous holiday weekend with your friends and loved ones. Even when times are tough, we all have so much to be thankful for, and I personally try to embrace a state of gratitude all year long. But it's really nice to have some time set aside to reflect on all we have to be thankful for. I'm guessing you tuned in for science, so I'll be as brief as I can. But amongst my many blessings, I'm so very grateful for all of you who share part of your day with me on this podcast, and especially those of you who go out of your way to reach out. Passing along all those positive remarks and whatnot to our wonderful guest never gets old for me. Many thanks to all of my incredibly supportive colleagues here at Price, and particularly to my associate producer, Kat, who not only makes each of these episodes possible, but makes them look and sound so great. Okay, so speaking of colleagues, today's guest is Dr. Stephen Prasher. We're both funded by the same integrative and multidisciplinary pain and aging research training grant. You'll hear us refer to Impart from time to time. That's what that is. That's from the NIH. His work is a captivating example of science's efforts to better understand what we once referred to as alternative medicine. In addition to him admitting that the Detroit Red Wings are superior over the Blackhawks, we edited that part out to keep him in the good graces of his family, we have a really fun conversation about the investigation of how breathing techniques can be used to improve health and well-being. We also delve into his collaboration with researchers across the country to better understand the therapeutic effects of psilocybin. We then wrap up the talk with a pretty practical application of the methods that he's studying that you can do on your own. The breathing, I mean, not the shrooms. Anyway, let's go ahead and settle in, take a deep breath, and let the mellow sounds of Ray Lynch carry you on to another awesome episode. Let's get to it. Welcome to The Price of Pain, brought to you by the Pain Research and Intervention Center of Excellence at the University of Florida. Let's join host Dr. Joshua Crow in conversations with scientists, healthcare providers, and industry professionals as we delve into the highly subjective experience of pain and the ongoing effort to reveal its influence on our everyday lives. But you're also a psych undergrad like I am, right? I am psych undergrad, but I didn't switch until my junior year. So I, I went in as a computer science and statistics major. Uh, and okay. then, yeah, I know, it's kind, of, it's kind of a total 180 going from staring at a computer, looking at numbers, trying to code programs and things like that. Um, to psychology and kind of studying humans in the mind. And, and I guess for me, it's I had the idea that like getting into computer science and stats would be a good way to earn lots of money and, and like have a, a good career that pays well. And um, I, I realized that that wasn't really the route that I wanted to go down and that there's kind of more fulfilling work out there. And so uh, I watched a TED talk from Martin Seligman, who is like one of the founders of positive psychology. Yeah. And um, he was talking about like basically how psychology for the past however many years, 60 to 100 years, was focused on the negative of, of helping treat mental illness and people with disorders and diseases. And of course, there's lots of value to that. And there's, there's um, more work to be done on that. But something that happens is kind of bringing a person from a, a mental illness, depression to the baseline instead of looking at people who might otherwise be seen as normal or healthy and bringing them to more optimal functioning. And, right. And just I've been interested in in being the best you can be and and living an optimal life as and in whatever ways possible. And so positive psychology was very, um, I guess, attractive for me to see. There's there's more than just focusing on the negative. We can focus on how can we enhance the health and well-being of people. Right. And and even treating people with conditions, different conditions, you can help them come to an even better quality of life. Well, this kind of harkens back a little bit to a conversation we were having earlier, too. Um, mm -hmm. I was talking about the delineation of adulthood into older adulthood, right? right. And we have, this, we have this age line where, yeah. you know, you're uh, you're an adult at 64, and then you hit 65, and all of a sudden you're an older adult. Right? Yep. <laughs> so, um, but it, I, I feel that along that topic of, of optimization, I was talking about optimizing. Uh, you know, the, your your basically your your global wellness. Mm -hmm. um, you know, your your body, your functionality, your your ability to to do the things that you enjoy and not be hindered. More so in a physical sense in yeah. that conversation, but but how much like with the age thing that that capability, yeah, there's optimization somewhere out in the distance, mm -hmm. right over the horizon, and there's definitely dysfunction 
um, but how we categorize that, what, what is a, a, a appropriate level of dysfunction or maladaptation uh, to, um, you know, psychological states or emotional mm-hmm. states, that line, we, we have to draw it somewhere, right? But still, who's to say that where you are right now? So you're, you're able to mostly do, and I'm sure that all the people that are listening who are, are clinical psychologists are like, well, we don't know exactly where to say that. But where you are right now might not be detrimental to you, mm-hmm. but somebody who is functioning at a, at a more optimized level would look at your position figuratively and say, well, that's dysfunctional compared mm-hmm. to where I am, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, it's, it's not like there's a line. It's just a matter of, you know, um, I yeah. guess which direction you're headed. We should think of it more as a vector as opposed to, you well, know. Well, yeah, like a, continuous rather than sort of a distinction of, okay, older or younger adult to older adult once you turn this certain age. It's a, it's a continuum um, and, and more of a spectrum of you can have more or less uh, well-being or quality of life depending on different factors. But there's not one sort of cutoff. You're above a four out right. of seven on <laughs> right. a quality of life scale. So then you're automatically determined, right. oh, I'm super healthy. It's it's more uh, nuanced than that. Yeah. And and another thing that, that really stood out, too, is, is when we got to the point where our, our conversations diverged. And so for people, you know, I, I think we're probably into our conversation now. Um, so for people listening along, you know, Steve presented before I did uh, in a meeting earlier, and we, we have different research interests. And so um, there were points in your presentation that naturally uh, segued into mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and two of them were looking at this. Uh, I'm reluctant to say holistic because I feel like that has a connotation, but like this this global whole person, mm-hmm. not just whole body or whole mind, but whole person yeah. approach, but also how when you look at that, that's not disregarding these various systems mm-hmm. or functions. Um, obviously, the, the body is parsed into to different systems that have specific roles. However, very seldom do they exist in a vacuum. Exactly. They're not isolated. They're uh-huh. all interrelated. So when you talk about you know wellness, mm-hmm. um, uh, particularly in regard with like mental wellness, that's so intrinsically woven in in physical wellness as well that that it's hard to in some cases to delineate between the two Mm -hmm. yeah i would totally agree and and i mean i just think back to my personal experience with chronic pain of waking up first thing in the morning and kind of rolling side to side does my back hurt today like and and feeling that it does can have a significant impact on how you start your day it's like you don't want to start your day in pain but that's the kind of scenario that so many millions of people potentially live in. And so what happens in our physical body is very closely tied to our mind. Our, there's This mind-body connection is um, extremely important in my opinion, and, and it speaks to this idea of the whole person health, meaning it's, it's multiple systems of our body that are interrelated in, in that influence each other. And so it's not just the body too, but it's also our environment and our mind too. And so it's these kind of interrelated facets that all kind of contribute to our, our health, our well-being, and, and how we function in day-to-day life. Well, there's, it seems like there's a, a lot of, you know, what came first, the chicken or the eggs. Mm-hmm. So your example of you wake up in the morning and you kind of assess your back pain. Mm-hmm. Well, Regardless if, if we go farther back chronologically as to, to where that, you know, where that started or what started it specifically, there's still this idea of, well, okay, so you have a, a physical sensation in the morning that could alter your mental and, uh, and emotional approach, your motivational approach mm-hmm. to the day Yeah, that in turn will feed back into likely mm-hmm. your emotional state, your, your state of anxiety or depression that'll feed back into the pain. Yeah. Right. And so behavior too. Yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. So yeah. Um, it's yeah. That, I, th- I think that's fascinating, but also from a research perspective mm-hmm. can be so frustrating because where do you start? Where do you, where do you snip in and say, okay, well we can, we can say that there's a causal relationship mm-hmm. and it goes in this direction. This causes this, not there's a bi-directional kind of thing. And mm-hmm. it's hard. It is hard. And it, and it also kind of speaks to the difficulties in conducting research and, and say, looking at clinical trials, like 
I was just working with uh, a participant who's blind. And so I had to read all the questionnaires to him and see how he kind of answered the the questions. And in thinking about clinical trials for chronic pain, let's say, we ask people to rate their pain on average over the past seven days. Mm-hmm. So you're asking a person to go back into their memory and come up with a number to rate their pain. And then we do an intervention or procedures or, or what have you, and then ask the same questions again. But it's still kind of these mental gymnastics that someone has to work through to come up with a pain rating to meet what the experimenter is asking you to do. It's, it's one of the challenges, but I mean, it's a, a good way, at least for the equipment that we have to see if it improves people's functioning because pain is very subjective and, mm-hmm. and so is quality of life. But it's still, it's not the same sort of level of science that people might look for a, in physics or in right. ha- which is, harder science. Which is why I think there's, there's so much of a push toward using the technology that we all have. I don't want to say we all, but most of us have available to us. Mm-hmm. Um, smartphones or now wearable technology that, that can be provided through the study on a temporary basis that will allow people to report momentary pain. Mm-hmm. Because anything that we do, there are some people that are better at this than others, but anything we do, if we're looking forward, again, the back pain thing in the first thing in the morning, or looking backwards and rating our pain or anything positive or negative over mm-hmm. the past week so much of what we do is through the lens of right now mm-hmm. and so there's there's that there's that ambiguous bias that that can affect that rating and uh, there's there's plenty of research i was actually just uh, elbows deep in this paper looking at um, seven day and one month recall mm-hmm. of pain versus momentary reporting of pain and the accuracy is just not there for recall. And mm-hmm. so it makes things so hard. It does. Um, but I think it, it's it's difficult, but it's some, it's the best we have to some degree. Mm-hmm. And if it helps improve a person's life, whether um, they rate it as a seven to a four, so be it. Yeah, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I'm hoping that you're okay sharing with this. So I'm going to ask and and if not, nobody will know because we'll cut this out. But um, you've mentioned your own experience with chronic pain mm-hmm. as a driving force to get you into the field you're in. People that follow this podcast know that that you are in the majority in that respect. So many researchers, mm-hmm. um, I, and I, this may be any career, get into what they do because of some kind of personal antecedent. Something makes them go in. Oh, mm-hmm. my grandfather did this. Or, oh, I had to deal with this. Or, oh, I was diagnosed with this and I want to find a cure or something, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you mind sharing uh, what your, your story with chronic pain? Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, it first started in undergraduate school from a weightlifting, not accident, but just a weightlifting injury from heavy lifting on squats. And then, okay. and then it like feeling some sort of pain in my low back and trying to take some time off, but then being too quick to get back into deadlifts kind of set it off again. And mm-hmm. so it led me down a path of, of chronic pain in, in my low back that I couldn't seem to get rid of for year or two years after trying lots of different treatments. So plenty of physical therapy, uh, so I saw a chiropractor, um, got a steroid injection and um, MRI to see if there was anything like major wrong majorly wrong with it. Um, and ultimately I think over time and, and just doing things like stretching and yoga and, uh, just letting it heal on its own without mm-hmm. like overdoing it without, did you like, get, did you get a diagnosis? Did anybody come yeah, up I, conclusively I had with what happened? a slip disc between L5, L6, S1. Mm-hmm. Um, but I caution against, kind of over-interpretation of that because there's plenty of research showing that like x-rays and MRIs for back pain um, aren't always predictive of the level of pain that someone might be experiencing. And so, I mean, yeah, that could have been caused from it or I might've had that before. It's, it's tough to say. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the, the pain that drove me more to this research was from grad school where I had a repetitive strain injury um, or repetitive stress injury. And so 
I used to have pain kind of down the whole right side of my neck, down my arm and, and like through my arm and into my hand mm. where it was very like numb, dull sensations from, I, I think from sitting in a car and driving for long periods of time, because I used to drive from uh, Missouri back to Chicago back and forth a lot, as well as some longer trips elsewhere. Um, and also from being in grad school, sitting at a laptop, oftentimes on a couch, kind of <laughs> sh- shoulders rounded forward and just I terrible posture. posture. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> terrible posture where it seems like things kind of collapsed on this side and and I don't know if it was nerve pain or, or what down the whole right arm. Was mm-hmm. this after the back problems? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're you're not in a situation where you say, oh, I really need to strengthen my posterior chain. I, I should get in the gym and do whatever. You mm-hmm. can't because right. you're in pain. Yeah, it, yeah exactly. And, yeah. and so this, I think it's called a repetitive stress injury too because stress can make it worse. Um, and to me, it was very kind of central nervous system based of, on some days it was better than others, but it seemed to be amplified in, in certain ways with stress. And so that is kind of how I got into breathing research and, and uh, I guess more like em- embodied somatic psychology sort of perspectives on things because I would spend lots of my free, not necessarily free time, but lots of my time kind of trying to understand where this was coming from or how to deal with it. And so um, I mean, I, I've had a, a yoga practice for a while where I used to go pretty frequently in grad school. And I mean, as part of that practice, it's about bringing your attention inwards and, and noticing your posture and noticing where your body is in space and, mm-hmm. and feeling different sensations in your body. So I've kind of from this chronic pain uh, developed a greater sort of bodily awareness to see where it is that might be causing the pain or discomfort in for this day or, or something like that. And so um, at, at, in my sort of process of trying to get rid of this pain and and I don't know if I'd call it an injury, but just, just dysfunction, mm-hmm. um, it led me to things like bioenergetics, which is from a school of somatic psychology. Um, that uses breathing techniques in different ways to bring your attention inwards, which now in the research that's called interoception, which people are focusing on more, mm-hmm. um, not just for chronic pain, but for health and well-being. But mm-hmm. um, trying to notice where the pain is coming from to try to uproot it to, to some degree and get to more of the root cause where it won't necessarily be an issue for long. And, and so it took me lots and lots of time of just being in my own body, breathing in different ways, putting my body in different positions to try to open up like what might be tight or might the tension might be, I don't know, pushing into a nerve or something that's leading to these sorts of sensations. And so um, as a result of, of kind of dealing with my own pain, it made me realize that I've actually learned a lot about how other research, not necessarily researchers, because it wasn't coming from the chronic pain literature or field per se, but how other people have dealt with um, persistent issues in their body um, and uncomfortable sensations and, and pain, basically. Mm-hmm. But And so that's why I started kind of moving in the direction of, I think I have something to offer here from my own background and own experiences that aren't necessarily being looked at from the chronic pain field. Hmm. I... <laughs> kind of cracks me up because there is there's a a bit of a juxtaposition with how you approach that and how I do and I think some of this has to be cultural Mm -hmm. I'm going to put this as as delicately and appropriately (laughs) as I can Um, so I come from a people (laughs) it's it's like a North American white guy (laughs) Uh, my people tend to um where pain and scars and then this is there will be people that are listening that can relate to this you're either tough for disregarding it or you you wear it because you can deal with it and that you get some kind of some kind of uh reinforcement metal. from that yeah right <laughs> you get a yeah, metal. yeah um and and i knowing now what we do about how the body and the mind and the brain, specifically structurally, not just the mind, but structurally in the brain, 
changes as a result of exposure to long-term pain mm -hmm. and this transition between acute and chronic pain. Um, you sought it out with the intention of finding its source and eradicating it, where there is a certain class or type or culture of people, and this is just, you know, not here domestically, but it's just, a, it's a type, it's a, it's a mm -hmm. personality type of some kind, who, who embrace that and, and get some kind of validation of, of their, their toughness or whatever uh -huh. out of it. And, and in doing so, however, there's, there's a branching. Your purpose was to deal with it. Mm -hmm. That, you know, this, this subtype of, of people don't go down that road mm -hmm. because if you deal with it, then it goes away. And then where's your validation for being a, a tough guy and, and dealing with the pain? Um, so I'm interested to, to know if, if there's maybe a, a subculture of people that, that are precipitating their own chronic pain, uh, as a result of how they address that. And, uh, I don't want to say internalize, but you, when you say look inward, it's different than how they do. Well, yeah. And well, I, I just want to mention first so hockey's my favorite sport and yeah you look at hockey players yes sir i mean they'll go out there on a broken leg and skate through the pain right and and finish the playoffs hit the bench and get stitched up and head back <laughs> exactly. out. right uh -huh. right and so there's definitely different types of people who can tolerate pain more or less to some degrees and who are more able to experience pain or don't even necessarily let it uh, impact their day-to-day -day function. Right. And then some who are, are a little more sensitive to pain. So like uh -huh. the, the better at dealing with it would be more like Red Wings players and the less would be like Blackhawks, right? Yeah. No, I, I think you have to reverse. It's, it's, <laughs> the, other it's the other way around. <laughs> yeah. We're going to fight about that later. <laughs> oh yeah. You're, you're from Michigan, are you? Yes, I am. Yeah. Proudly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's all right. We'll get past it. I'm uh -huh. sure yeah. we have enough commonalities. Um, so the, uh, the grad school switch. You you mm -hmm. mentioned that that um, around junior year of undergrad, you shifted into psychology a bit more, mm -hmm. and, and and did that set the tone for your choice for grad school? Um, yeah, I I knew that it would be a good idea to get into a research lab, um, and I didn't really necessarily have grad school in mind, but I had heard that you can't do a whole lot with an undergraduate <laughs> psychology degree. And so turns out that's true. <laughs> yep. And so I thought, well, maybe grad school would be a good next step. And so, I don't know, I applied to eight to 10 schools and, and got into one and it turned out to be a perfect fit where that's great. Yeah. The, at the, at Mizzou at university of Missouri, um, the faculty in my program were just uh, amazing because there was, it was such an autonomy supporting environment where I had the freedom to pursue my research interests mm -hmm. and really kind of carve out my own niche in, in different areas, but they were still there to be supportive and, and like provide enough background and what we needed to know. Pardon me for not recalling this from your CV, but did mm -hmm. with grad school, did you jump straight into a PhD or did you do a master's first? Well, it was a PhD or master's PhD program. Okay. So okay. I was accepted to the PhD program, but you just kind of do a master's project and get your master's sure, along the way. Sure. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. Okay. Do I want to circle around and uh, and talk for a moment about how you separate some of your interests within this concept of, of whole person wellness? Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like that's a good springboard into the different interests that you have and in, in, in the different experiences that you have. Um, so let's you you touched on psilocybin and whatnot mm -hmm. and how how a class in grad school piqued your interest there, but you're still continuing on with research in that, right? Yeah. How's that being applied? First off, tell us, tell us about your research. Uh, well, I'll, I'll start off broader with how it's being applied and then okay. go into my research. Excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, right now when I say psychedelics, it, it doesn't have as much baggage as it used to 20, 30 years ago, but there's still probably a lot of stigma and, and maybe confusion around psychedelics and psilocybin. Um, but over the last 20 plus years now, there's been a lot of really rigorous and compelling research coming out um, looking at this model of therapy where it's it's not just a drug therapy where people are given psilocybin, which is uh, commonly known as magic mushrooms. It's the active ingredient in, in so-called magic mushrooms. So it's not just a, a drug therapy, but it's and it's also not just like a, a um, behavioral therapy where you're talking to a therapist, but both of those 
are kind of combined into what's known as psychedelic assisted therapy or, or psychedelic therapy, depending on who's talking about it. And so the structure of it is um, people who are in a research study will meet with two therapists to get to know them, build rapport, um, and prepare them for the actual psychedelic session. And in these trials that have been conducted, generally people receive one or two sessions of psilocybin or a different psychedelic, depending on the type of study. And then, and during that session, those two guides or uh, therapist facilitators um, are present with them the whole time, but the participant is wearing eye shades and, and headphones with a pre-selected music playlist. Mm. Um, and they're given the instructions to turn their attention inwards and to kind of trust, let go, and be open to whatever happens. And so... If, can, can I stop you for some details along the way? Yeah, for sure. So this is a semi-sensory deprivation if, if you, you know, you're blindfolded and whatnot. So mm -hmm. you're trying to, to, to limit the, the sensory input yeah. externally. Uh -huh. yeah. But the music, mm -hmm. you say that's pre-selected. By the research staff? By the research, yeah. I mean, there's been a study or two that has allowed participants to kind of curate their mm -hmm. playlist, but most of the time... Doors. <laughs> yeah, if, yeah. That, if that's a, <laughs> your forte, go for right. it. Um, but it's selected by the researchers, and it has kind of a purpose to it, and, and it follows along the um, timeline of the drug effects, where okay. there's kind of a buildup and, and more of a crescendo to more kind of emotionally activating types of music that mm. can sometimes lead to emotional or cathartic experiences and uh, and people talk about emotional breakthroughs or psychological insight coming from these types of experiences. So I'm a musician. Yeah. Um, obviously not a professional musician because this is what I do, but um, enough that, that music has a, a pretty strong effect on me in a, a very sober and non- <laughs> you know, psilocybin-induced state. Mm -hmm. um, so when when the researchers select this, this pre-selected playlist, is there any type of control with the participants where they ask the participants their response uh, prior to the session itself to this music? Is there, do they control in that in any way, shape, or form? Because so, I feel like you know, music affects people entirely differently. It does. It uh -huh. does. And, and so there's been a couple papers actually looking at the music, the effect of the music. Mm -hmm. um, and I think one paper has called it like the hidden therapist because it does have these separate effects and can sort of guide people's experiences in different ways if, if like uh, a... I don't know, depending on the type of song that comes on next. And so they, I don't think it's been systematically looked at where they look at people's responses to the playlist before they actually go listen to it while under the influence of psilocybin, yeah. for example. Mm -hmm. I think for most people, they hear it for the first time during their session. Um, I think that's an area that people are going to be looking at more, but we just don't know much about it yet. Yeah, there's and there there are pretty specific ways that you can measure these things. Um, you know, respiratory rate mm -hmm. and, and heart rate, blood pressure, pupil dilation. These these uh, autonomic responses to to emotion yeah. that's that's elicited by the music. But we see this. Uh, a friend of mine um, is is in in this program here at the University of Florida, where they're combining music and medicine. Mm -hmm. um, he's a violinist, really talented guy, and um, and and there's you know he's he's got a, a foot in in this realm of looking at just the effects of music and so something that may be and and I don't know what type of music's being played uh, but but nonetheless you know the the I remember <laughs> this is gonna date me a little bit I remember kicking around Barnes and Noble one time and this Yanni song came on now Yanni. It's still around, I'm sure, but predates you a little bit. Yeah, yeah, you know <laughs> yeah no. <laughs> this is some this is some easy listening, no words. But he's he's a fantastic you know modern music composer. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely the kind of music you would expect to hear in in a, in a bookstore or something like that. I went out and bought the CD. It was one of those things where I was you know I was doing something was totally distracted. So that to me um, seems like it could be a, a really big confound to, to looking at some of these effects if mm -hmm. you're trying to isolate the effects of, of uh, a particular uh, 
almost said narcotic, but maybe that's not the best way to go. Uh, a pharmacological substance. Yeah, so you get psychoactive yeah. substance. Yeah. And but I think you bring up a couple good points. So, one, the the playlist is is generally not with lyrical or there's not a lot of singing. It's mainly like instrumental. Um, I mean, it ranges from back to classical music to to I don't know even present day or different cultural types of cultural music. Mm-hmm. So it has a, a huge range in what's in there. Um, but also for trying to isolate the effects, that's why music may certainly have some sort of effect on the outcomes of the treatment. And so that's why it's important to include a control condition that where participants hear the same music. And mm-hmm. so that variable is at least controlled for. So you can't necessarily disentangle that the drug itself contributed to this much of improvement in symptoms and the therapy contributed to this much yeah. um, and the music this much. So it's okay. hard to tease that apart. Now, second question uh, before I get out of your way and let you move on. Dose response. Mm-hmm. Somebody had asked uh, with one yeah. of the studies you're, that you, you were mentioning earlier, um, are you looking at different amounts of psilocybin mm-hmm. and, and the effect? I want to take it a step back. As far as the dosage is mm-hmm. in the studies that, that you're seeing that you're basing your work from, are they choosing a dosage that is, you know, per body mass, per kilogram of body mass or something like that? And is that how it's Yeah, generally it's been like twenty to thirty milligrams per seventy kilograms of body mass. And so it, it used to be weighted like that, but now most people so this is these are considered high dose studies okay. where where we're trying to elicit some type of type of experience and so you need a sufficiently high dose to kind of get to that level mm-hmm. and so most people have been doing studies between the range of 20 to 35 milligrams of psilocybin, which I know doesn't mean a whole lot in, in just numbers speak, but yeah, I lied. I'm going to keep interrupting because I, there's, <laughs> no, there's so much, I have so many questions. Um, so for there, there have to be people who are listening to this that have recreational experience mm-hmm. with this. And you yeah. say an experience and, and they're going, oh yeah, so they're out there tripping. Okay. How would you rate in your knowledge the doses you're talking about on a spectrum of um, microdosing, which is a thing, and I'd like you to touch on that, to Woodstock, you mm-hmm. know, on, on that spectrum, where, where are we where are we talking as far as how much? Um, I would say an av- like, I mean, in, in the layperson, it's like a heroic dose of mushrooms is like five grams of dried mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And so that is somewhat similar to 25 to 30 milligrams. And so that would be somewhat equivalent to people in the real world taking it recreationally. As for microdosing, that's a, a much smaller dose that's often like sub-perceptual where you don't notice there's not a like a drastic change in your consciousness and, and how you see the world necessarily and can go about your business. And um, people say it helps with creativity or focus or, or um, I don't know, helping them work in different ways. And that is a much, much smaller dose where I don't know what it's there. There have only been maybe a few studies that have come out on microdosing. Um, and so I don't know the exact sort of uh, levels that people are using, but it's much smaller than what's used in these high dose studies. In the, in the substance that's used in the studies, is, is this uh, an extract of actual mushrooms? Is it synthetic? Are there both? Yeah. So right now it's, it's all synthetically made. Um, some people are. Um, extracting psilocybin from actual mushrooms, but those are still very early studies. And uh, to be approved by the FDA and DEA, it has to go through a very like rigorous process of being able to recreate it and, and make sure it's pure and, and meet all their standards to use for research. And so um, it's a very complicated process from what I've seen of it so far. Um, and that's for psilocybin. Other studies have looked at LSD uh, for microdosing as well, but that's more so in Europe right now. There's studies coming out of Switzerland, and I, I think um, maybe in Imperial College London, but I'm not positive on that one. They're playing more Pink Floyd in those studies. Yeah, uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> Dark side um, of the <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, so, so put it all together with, with uh, 
with regard to pain, how is mm-hmm. pain being treated by this? And well, this so yeah, and I'll say that this has like what we're doing now is looking at uh, a high dose psilocybin as a potential treatment for chronic low back pain, and so there's really been very little research done in the pain space. I, I want to just touch a little bit on the other research Please. to say that the studies that have been conducted so far have looked at things like PTSD, treatment-resistant depression, um, different types of addiction, and say end-of-life anxiety or depression often in people who have a cancer diagnosis. And and so what what they're finding in the research is after one or two of these psilocybin or psychedelic-assisted therapy sessions, people tend to have significant meaningful, clinically meaningful improvements in their conditions that tend to last for uh, at least until the follow-ups in six months, 12 months for many of these studies. Um, So it's a very different model of what we, treatment model that we have now of taking this pill for this antidepressant each day for however long until you feel better. Um, And so it, it kind of speaks to the ability of psychedelics to get at this treatment resistance or in the pain field, I've seen it called as stickiness, this kind of stickiness of chronic pain where it won't go away after all these different types of treatment. And so the kind of thinking for it is, well, maybe if it works for these other sort of treatment resistant conditions, it might work for pain. Um, And so there are lots of different reasons why it might work. Um, I'll say as our group in and I want to acknowledge I'm working with others out in California, uh, doctors Josh Woley and Ellen Bradley from UCSF and Boris Heifetz from Stanford, because I wouldn't be doing this work without them. But one way we've talked about it is um, changing one's relationship to your pain and so kind of seeing it in a different light. So maybe it might work where people's pain intensity doesn't go away. They, They still have pain, but maybe they're able to think about it in a different way or have a different sort of understanding of where it came from or why uh, that they're still able to kind of function in their day-to-day life without it having so much of an impact. And this comes from partly from other work in, in the depression, looking at the depression trials and anxiety trials of or in addiction too, is those are sometimes characterized by ruminative thought loops or habitual thinking in, in certain ways. And one of the, the ways that psychedelics appear to work is um, it's been described as like shaking up a snow globe and letting things kind of settle again and, and rewiring the brain in different ways to not be stuck in those ruts of, of uh, depressive thinking, for example. Describe something, even, even if, you're, if you're coming up with a fictitious example, but mm-hmm. the, the loops that you described for... For those who are unfamiliar with this or, or haven't dealt with chronic pain or recovered from a, uh, a severe injury, um, what do you mean by ruminative? Yeah, I guess first thing that comes to my mind is about pain catastrophizing and, and just worrying, is this pain ever going to go away or is it going to get worse? Is there something like structurally wrong with me, physically wrong with me that I'll become disabled soon or I won't be able to do the sorts of activities that I want to do? It's it's very um, kind of looping back to limitations and whether that's functional limitations or even not being able to socially do things that you might want to do or play sports if you're injured. It's like it kind of it can get you pulled down into wondering, well, is this ever going to get better when it's lasted for years and years? And how does that affect pain moving forward? Well, because you say you want to you want to shake up the snow globe and mm-hmm. let things settle differently. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that bad? Or, or what, what can you speak on to that? respect? Yeah, I would say that by maybe having the experience, because people have reported that while under the influence of a psychedelic, that they're able to move in ways that they weren't able to move before without pain. And to have that sort of experience of, wow, I can actually do this without it hurting can then change one's behavior going forward and, and kind of have less fear of moving, of, of bending over to pick something up or 
uh, or playing a sport again or, or whatever it is that a person might be focusing on. So when we talk about optimization earlier, it's, it's kind mm -hmm. of like the Roger Bannister effect, right? So he's, he's the first first man to, to break the four-minute mile, if I mm, serve okay, correctly. Okay, yeah. My colleague, Ray Spradlin, jumps on here and, and listens to this, and I have this wrong. I apologize in advance. Um, not a runner. Matter of fact, <laughs> I really don't like running. But Roger Bannister uh, broke the four-minute mile and uh, at a time when, when we thought that it, it, there, there was a natural barrier, that it couldn't be done. Yep. And within, and I know I'm going to get this number wrong because I'm just going to take a stab out there, but within the next year, something like seven more people did it. Mm -hmm. But he was the catalyst for exactly. that. Uh -huh. So there was, there was something in, in us creating our own barriers to mm -hmm. moving forward, to progress, and in this case, to, to a healthier mindset with regard to, you know, to chronic pain states that, that we set for ourselves by running up against it and turning back, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I think that's spot on and kind of giving someone this self-efficacy, this hope, there's proof that, oh, I can have or be pain-free at times. And whether that lasts or not, we're not sure. It's, I mean, that's part of why we're conducting the research. And so I think that's one possible mechanism of, of feeling their body differently while they're under the influence and maybe changing how they think about it and behave in the world afterwards. Um, I also, and these are my own opinions and not necessarily the opinions of my collaborators. Of <laughs> um, I think it can also work on a, another level, more of, of a, a somatic level. And, and there's some evidence of this from previous research on LSD and um, Stan Groff was, was the sort of famous researcher back in the 60s and 70s who conducted thousands of, um, of therapist sessions and noticed uh, many different things happening to people. And part of it was people having somatic uh, body-oriented releases of, of your body moving in different ways or um, kind of people spontaneously getting into different positions to help release tension and, and release, um, in my opinion, emotions that might not have been fully expressed or acknowledged or that have been avoided that might be in the body causing physical tension to melt away. So they're placing themselves in physical positions mm -hmm. that have an effect on not just their body, but their mind. N not, not exactly. So I'm, um, I'm talking more about physical positions to enabled the opening of the body. So, so I mean, leaning back or letting your arm kind of unwind in different ways. Mm -hmm. And so not necessarily having an effect on the mind, but having a direct effect on the body. Um, and part of this, I think, is tied up to, again, somatic psychology, which is the idea that issues, past emotional issues, stress, overwhelming life events, trauma, can have can stay in the body and in the nervous system until they're sort of fully uh, ex expressed and allowed to kind of complete their their life cycle. So mm -hmm. as an emotion comes up, so say you're angry, but you don't want to feel it, you can hold your breath and, and shove it down. But it doesn't necessarily go away is the idea from somatic psychology. It's it's just kind of dormant. And it's like pushing down a beach ball underwater. Mm -hmm. And so my thinking with psychedelic assisted therapy as well as breathwork research um, in certain contexts can is it's a way to get more at the core or the root of these problems. And so instead of constantly having to be pushing things down, going to them when you're in this supportive setting to allow them to come up complete and let go and, and drawing from somatic psychology work is that's, what can lead to physical tension in the body and, and muscle tightness of, of body armoring is what Wilhelm Reich kind of talked about when, when he came up with this field of positive psychology. And so to me, I think by getting more to these emotional issues, traumatic events that may have occurred, and they don't have to be something severe like going off to war. It could be um, feeling like your needs weren't met as a child, like something as small as that can still have an impact on your body that may not necessarily be in conscious awareness, but that can still be having an impact on your day-to-day -day function on how your body moves, how you hold yourself, how you breathe. 
uh, how you sleep. And, and so I think it needs to be tested and, and it's still very, very early on, but I think that might be one mechanism through which um, psychedelics could potentially help with chronic pain. Okay. That's, uh, that's fascinating stuff. Uh, and it ties into what we're talking about, but I think of the headaches of, of trying to measure that and, and quantify it, Yeah, but still <laughs> super interesting. And you know, and this may be unrelated, but when people make the comments, oh, you, you carry your anger in your, or you carry your tension in your, mm-hmm. it seems like this is at least looking toward that, that direction of, of, uh, this idea of somatic psychology. Yeah, I, and I would agree with that too. And and there's, I mean, there's some work, say with chronic low back pain that um, people have more issues with anger. And so there's there's some correlational and, and research in that front, but really not a whole lot. And so you have, I'm going to interject here. You've you've talked for a while about how to to facilitate this looking inward. Mm-hmm. to resolve some of these issues that, that may be either causing or contributing to the severity of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. But another big area of your research that you just touched on a moment ago is breath work. Mm-hmm. It seems like everything that you've talked about has some component of simple self-awareness. And by self-awareness, I don't even necessarily mean, this is a loaded question because we do some work in this, but... Um, I don't even necessarily mean, oh, this was my background and these were the times where I expected one thing and didn't throughout my development and now it put me on this path and this mm-hmm. triggers. I don't mean that level of awareness. Simply, this hurts. Mm-hmm. This is tense. This is where my attention is. So let's shift gears a little and through that common thread because I it's super fascinating, of course, to 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 be in a position where science and, and and culture is becoming more comfortable with looking at uh, substances that were deemed at least in in the modern area in our con- in, in our culture as recreational entirely recreational oh, it's easy dangerous yeah, yeah. dangerous mm-hmm. um, you know this this is on the other side of the gateway drugs you know mm-hmm. if, if you, again a little bit before your time but you know the the whole don't say no or just don't say no, <laughs> just say no and, and, uh, and you know, whatnot. But, um, that's, that's fantastic. And, and I, I think it's great that, 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 that is in the same package of being willing to look at something that has been part of society and culture for a very long time, if not just ours, but, you know, going back to, to Eastern culture and, mm-hmm. and roots of civilization, right. but Breathing is most certainly one of those things and doesn't come along with any of the social stigmas. Mm-hmm. Um, 51% of the population is female. A uh, fair amount of them have uh, birthed children. <laughs> and in doing so, they've managed their pain by breathing through labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What we're talking about, what you're, you're interested in, isn't too far afield from that. Mm-mm. Tell us about it. Yeah, so, well... Thank you for that sort of transition. I, I think there's... That's why I get paid the big bucks. That's why I sit on this side of the table. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's so much potential here with with breath work and breathing practices and breathing interventions. Um, it's it's something that's been, I mean, practiced for thousands of years, going back to, to yoga as a practice for literally 3,000, 4,000 plus years. And so it's not like it's something new, but I think... Uh, it is kind of coming around a little bit more um, with new books being published about breathe as a top seller lately. And so to me, it's accessible to everyone. You don't need special equipment. You don't need to go somewhere. You don't need to have a certain income or be of a certain status. Everyone has access to their breathing. And just to highlight the importance and how vital breathing is, we kind of start life by taking a breath and end life by taking our last breath. And every minute between then, our body automatically has these built-in mechanisms to make sure we have enough oxygen, don't have too much CO2, and that our pH level is balanced so that we have this sort of uh, homeostatic environment, which is very, it's a very tight window. And so we have this deeply, deeply ingrained system that is uh, robust, meaning it's it's not influenced 
in ways that will kind of tip you off because you won't survive. It has to be very strong mm -hmm. in keeping you in this window of optimal sort of oxygen carbon dioxide levels. And so with that, I think it's tied to many other systems of the body. And so it's, it's deep in our brainstem to initiate breathing automatically. And we can also voluntarily influence our breathing in, in different ways. And so I don't know if I talked about it at the beginning of the podcast or in my presentation now, but um, unlike digestion or heart rate, which are other autonomic functions, um, we can bring our breathing into awareness and change it. So you can't really change your heartbeat that easily or that instantly. You might be able to be aware of it, but mm -hmm. it's very easy to take a deep breath in through your nose or through your mouth. Um, and since we're able to so easily tap into the respiratory system and we know the respiratory system is connected closely with the cardiovascular system and the lymphatic system and the nervous system, it's all these different systems of the body are related and interconnected, which goes back to what we were talking about with whole person health. And so breathing is one way to tap into that system and try to take advantage of it and working on both a physical level, on a bodily level of you're literally taking in more oxygen than you might otherwise be used to. And, and thinking about old age and even just people going through life can tend to breathe up in their chest and not take full breaths into mm -hmm. their body. And by not having enough oxygen, which is kind of the energy source of our cells that can influence the functioning of lots of different areas of our body that can lead to disease. And so when you say tap into this too, I, I can't, the physiologist in me can't help can't help to think that and it, you're not tapping in on somewhere on the perimeter of this. As you alluded to, breathing interacts with so many ways that our body communicates mm -hmm. with itself. Yep. Um, the, the idea, as you said, of, of, of breathing regulation uh, originating or at least being uh, metered in the brainstem mm -hmm. because it's essential to life. And I, I like the, uh, the, and, and I'll let you do this, but I, I like the, the infographic about how mm. long you can go without. Uh, so I want you to share okay. that in just a moment, but um, <laughs> since it's, you know, fresh in your mind, but um, you know, it, it's so central to what we do, but you're right. You can, you know, a, a bit, for example, I used to love this fun fact when back when I used to teach physiology lab and stuff like that. You know, when you, you take a deep breath and you jump in a pool and you go all the way to, you know, say you grab a, a rock or you sink to the bottom or whatever. And, and you don't do that trick of, of letting your breath out, which mm -hmm. actually plays centrally into this. But when you're down there and you have that urge to get back to the surface and take a big gulp of air, why is that? Most of the students will raise their hand and say, oh, it's because you're running out of oxygen. Absolutely not. Right. You know, you, you've got a pH balance that's occurring because you need to get rid of the carbon dioxide. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, and an easy way to test that is, of course, the old trick of, you know, when you're down at the pool, the bottom of the pool and you want to stay for longer, you don't take a breath down there. You breathe some of the air out. Mm -hmm. Well, that lends itself to support this. Um, but you can quite literally alter the chemical balance in your bloodstream. You can alter gas exchange. Yep. You can there's a, a bi-directional uh, effect between your mechanical breathing, your ventilation, and the areas of your brain that drive your desire. And, and you don't have to think about breathing. Obviously, it'll do it on its own. So mm -hmm. it, in, in some ways, it's uh, uh, you know, just an autonomic effect. But, but you, can, you can jump right in the middle of all of those things mm -hmm. very easily. Yeah. You know, we're not talking about one of the, you know, the, the pearl divers that you see at Disney that, that you, you hear, oh, well, they can slow their heart rate and stay down there for longer. I'm talking about any of that, you're talking about something simple. Exactly. And, and that's why I think it can be very impactful and scalable because you don't need like extremely special training to learn how to breathe in different ways. Like in my study, I'm, we have one practice session and then people are asked to do it on their own at home. And so it, it can kind of work as this self-management practice, depending on what type of breathing you might be doing. But because it's so integrated, physiologically speaking, and also connected to um, our emotional stress and kind of psychological states too, um, 
it can be used in different ways in, in different contexts, depending on the type of um, breathing, breathwork intervention or therapy you might be um, investigating. But just to back up to, to go back to the infographic, just to yeah, kind of hammer home the, the point of how important breathing is for survival, we can go three weeks without eating. And these are just kind of rough estimates to make it called the, the rule of threes for survival. Um, you can go three weeks without eating. You can go three days without water. You can go three hours in extreme temperatures without shelter, but you can only go three minutes without breathing before some sort of brain damage comes in or death. And so it's, it's, I mean, to me, very clear that breathing is an extremely important physiological function. And as such, it has to be closely related and monitored in with the rest of our body. And so since we are able to influence it volitionally at will instantly and relatively easily, it seems that there would be many downstream effects that we could kind of elicit by doing so. Now, you're in the middle of your study right now, so I don't want to ask you specifically about your protocol and the mm -hmm. type of breathing that you do in your study. But for people who are totally unfamiliar with this, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think pretty much everybody has stubbed their toe. And so they, you know, breathe quickly. I mentioned mm -hmm. the, the Lamaze thing with, with pregnancy in, in, in labor. Um, you know, <laughs> this doesn't work, but, you know, and so, hey, just relax, man. Just <laughs> <Yeah>. take a breath. <laughs> but still, there's a root to that, uh -huh. a common root. How are you manipulating or, or in the studies that, that you're basing your work on, mm -hmm. how is breath specifically being manipulated to elicit this response? What are, what are the participants doing? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll first talk about what's most commonly done in the literature because that's where most of the evidence is. And, and that's slow, deep breathing. And that's generally taking about four to six breaths per minute. So you can do this on your own by counting five or six seconds on an inhale you can have a slight pause, five or six seconds on an exhale. And and by just slowing down your breath, you can get into more of the parasympathetic state of rest, relaxa relaxation, um, which could help with pain and, and has shown to help with some experimental pain. Um, the type of breathing that I'm doing is comes from a, a, an ancient med meditation practice called Tumo Meditation, but has more recently been popular, popularized by a guy named Wim Hof, um, who I have to give a shout out to, yeah. to because... The Iceman cometh. The Iceman cometh, yeah. <laughs> if, if anyone is interested in learning more about this breathing, there's plenty of informational videos through Wim Hof and, and their work there. But previous research has shown that that can influence the not only the nervous system, but the immune system too, where they taught people this breathing technique within four days and injected them with an endotoxin and, and measured actual um, physiological and biological responses in people who had practiced the breathing versus not. Mm. Um, and this hasn't been looked at in the context of chronic pain, but it's a type of breathing um, using something called connected breathing or circle, circular breathing where there's no pause between the inhale and the exhale. Um, just, I know it will sound weird in the mic. No, do it. Get it. <laughs> okay. <sighs> so it, it's, it's like that where it's sometimes faster than normal and tries to be deeper, deeper diaphragmatic breathing, often through the, the mouth, but it can be done through the nose. And so it involves 30 to 40 breaths of that. And then at the end of that, there's... Um, a breath retention where people are instructed to hold their breath for as long as they can without kind of pushing it past their means. Um, and there, there's the connected breathing, then the breath retention, and you hold your breath at the end of that as well. And that's considered one round and, and people can do three to five rounds. And so in my study, we're looking at the effects of three rounds of that type of breathing in people who have chronic low back pain compared to a more just kind of um, traditional deep breathing, but with less instructions. And so while people are told to breathe deeply uh, every minute or two, generally people just kind of resort back to their normal breathing in between those deep breaths. And so 
it's a way to try to look at the effects of two different breathing interventions, but one we expect to be more effective. I have to wonder, there's a, there's a commonality in all of the methods that you just described. Mm -hmm. And that that's attention. Mm -hmm. The, the breather has to consciously think. So we say things that, that can be somewhat opaque, like look inward. Mm -hmm. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> yeah. However, when you bring your attention to something such as your breath that will go on without your, your control, without you doing anything to it, it allows you to observe yourself um, in, in a way that's maybe akin to but subtly different than you know stare at the back of your own hand for a half hour. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to wonder if part of the effects of breathing and an attention to breathing or modified breathing has to do with that, that inward attention that somehow draws um, an awareness to some of the other things you were talking about before. Mm -hmm. When when you're not distracted externally and, and you're focused on something like your breathing, you may come to an awareness, and, and I mean this in, a, in a, a very strict sense of the term, an awareness of, why am I, why am I doing that with my shoulder? Or, or oh, wait, my, my leg doesn't hurt right now. Mm -hmm. um, we have examples in the literature of, of some of these autonomic effects, things that go on without us attending to them, without us uh, putting any effort toward them. In maladaptive states, they run rampant or have mm -hmm. the ability to run rampant. And that's, on a very superficial level, that's what chronic pain is. Right? There's, there's, no, there's no tissue damage. There's no impending tissue damage. All, all that's passed. Mm -hmm. And yet you're still experiencing pain somehow. And it almost seems like, you know, I, I'm throwing out all these references that I don't mean to be before you. And this is actually before me, too. But it's, it's like you put on a record, right? And unlike your Spotify playlist, when it gets to the end, it just bumps up against the label, right? But if you're not in the room, it's going to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. If you don't do something, if you don't have an awareness of it, that's just going to keep bumping against the label. And that uh, makes me want to put records on when I get home. <laughs> But it, it, to, to draw that analogy to pain, though, I, I wonder if just that attention to, to looking at yourself mm -hmm. uh, or at a, a physiological process that you don't normally have to attend to uh, maybe somehow unlocks that cycle without maybe without changing any of the mechanics of the mm -hmm. breathing. Yeah. And I, I think um, there's definitely something to that. And, and even just if you were to take a second and see, try to see how your body feels right now, you might notice like for me, example, holding tension in a shoulder or something like that. And by just bringing attention there, you're able to realize, oh, I'm like tightening an area of my body that doesn't need to be tight. Mm -hmm. um, and so that can be done through meditation practices too, or just not even needing meditation, just taking a second to check in with yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but what I think breathing does too is it's one, in my opinion, can be easier than meditation because sitting still and just told to like bring your attention inwards can be challenging, but having a, a sort of behavioral cue to breathe in a certain way gives you something to do at least. Um, but also I think by breathing in certain ways, uh, depending on the type of breathing, it can kind of like turn up the volume on sensations in your body so that you may be more aware of areas that you might be holding tightness or tension. So we are getting pretty close to having to wrap up, and okay. I want to leave our audience with something that they can take and use. Mm -hmm. I, I'm wildly fascinated by this. I've enjoyed our talk, and it went by way too quickly. <laughs> um, so I, I look forward to doing this again at, at some point. But in the meantime, for those who are listening, what's one way – one, one of the me – not mechanisms, I shouldn't say that. One of the techniques uh, that you've touched on mm -hmm. that somebody can go and try right now. As soon as, as, soon as the Ray Lynch music plays at the end of this uh, – <laughs> shout out to Ray um, and Catherine. Um, when this podcast ends, that they can, they can do right now, sitting mm -hmm. wherever they are, um, to, 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 to experience a little bit of what you're talking about. Yeah. What can they do? Uh <clears throat> I don't know how this will go, but I'll give it as a recommendation for okay. someone to try anyway. Um, Pull the car over, people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't do this while you're driving. Um, but 
you can start by first just paying attention to your breathing and and notice how deep your breathing goes. Is it kind of stuck in the chest or does it actually, do you breathe kind of with your whole body uh, expanding on an inhale, contracting on an exhale, just as a basic sort of warm up to feel what it's like to be in your body right now. And then you can move to more open mouth connected breathing where you're taking an inhale and exhale without a pause, like I demonstrated before. And while you're doing that, try to pay attention to your body and notice if there's areas that become more active, more if there's more tension that kind of comes to the surface. And if there is, you can put a hand there or, or push into it and, and see if your body wants to move in certain ways to help kind of release any sort of uh, tightness that might be causing pain in, in certain areas. And one thing to note is is kind of the idea with trigger points is you might have tension up here, but feel pain down in your wrist. So it's not always the case that where you feel the activation is where the pain is. It could be referred pain going to another place. And so just try bringing your attention inwards while breathing in a, in a connected circular breathing type of way and see what happens. And, and as long as you're in a safe and comfortable position, there should be no harm to it. Thank you so much. You all have your homework now. Hmm. Um, Steve, I want to thank you for coming on and, and being so forthcoming, not only with your own work that you're, that you're slaving over right now, <laughs> um, but, but your outlook on a lot of these things. Uh, I, I love to hear uh, our guests' perspective on science and on, on the purpose of science, but, but we got a chance to, to take even another step back, I think, to, to bring some awareness to uh, some ways that you can look at your overall health and, mm -hmm. and how it's all connected and without being too foo-foo in doing so, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, we're not sitting here legs crossed and levitating over a, a Persian rug or anything like mm -hmm. that. This is, is very uh, rooted and grounded um, you know, practices that, that anybody could take advantage of. And, and even just the knowledge that they exist, uh, I encourage people to, to seek this out. Um, and I'm excited for people like you who are, are applying an empirical approach, a scientific approach yeah. to, to finding out what some of the mechanisms are behind these thousands of year old practices. I think it's long mm -hmm. overdue. Um, you know, aside from, from your, your crazy neighbors down the street that, that, that are into some weird stuff. These are really things that, that are rooted deeply in many cultures, right. uh, that because our culture is so new, we may not be so aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so thanks for that. And I, I, I'm sure I can speak for the audience, not only in thanking you and coming on, but thanks for going down that road from a scientific perspective. I'm very eager to see what comes. Well, thanks for having me. This was great. Thank you for joining this episode of The Price of Pain. Opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and not representative of the University of Florida or parent institutions of our guests, unless specifically stated. You can find more information about Price on the World Wide Web at price.ctsi.ufl.edu. And keep up with our researchers on social media by searching Facebook for UF Price, by following at UF underscore pain on Twitter, and Price of Pain Podcast, all one word, on Instagram. <laughs>